everyone, and welcome to A Leader's Impact, a podcast for business owners, managers, change makers, and anyone who's keen to get along in the world of business. I'm Steve from Iris Software, and our guest today leads little introduction is Carl Reader. Now, the reason I've asked Carl to join me today is that I want to talk through all about what small businesses in particular can do to ride the recession wave in the best shape possible. It's going to be a real opportunity for us to unlock their power and for others around reducing their risk and keeping their heads above water. So today's podcast is all around what businesses can do to grow. Now, Carl, you're an expert in working with small businesses. Obviously, you've run a number of small businesses and still do yourself. This seems to be a real hot topic for businesses at the moment because we've come through a really uh, unproductive period, I would say, during the pandemic. And we're seeing that this this optimism for some firms around growing is really there and the appetite's there, but people are struggling with growth. Yeah, it's a really interesting time. So, Steve, first things first, thank you so much for having me on and, um, and yeah, sharing some of the experiences that I've seen both in my own businesses and in the wider small business community. Um, you're absolutely right. It, there's this strange atmosphere where you can speak to one business owner and they are worried about how they're going to keep the lights on. They're worried about how they're going to pay the bills. But the next is actually really ambitious, seeing the opportunity and going for it. And it's quite unlike any other recession I've seen before. So, Steve, I'm, I'm not that old, but I've been through a couple of them. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've, um, I've, I've been through the dot-com boom in the early 2000s, which... Yeah. In truth, I believe the UK was relatively insulated from, certainly from a small business perspective. And um, the 2007, 2008, 2009 credit crunch and the the global financial crisis where, again, small businesses were relatively insulated from it. It was, um, I guess you could say, a theoretical uh, recession and stuff was happening. But actually, unless you were directly impacted through being a house builder in the construction sector or similar or in a supply chain of a business that struggled with funding, actually things weren't too bad. But this time round, it's really strange to see um, both the diversity in attitude from business owners, which I've not seen before, but also strangely, the commonality of a recession insofar as how it's affected us all, whether we're in business or in our personal lives. Yeah, it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? The the different types of industries and markets that various small businesses are in, it almost doesn't seem to make too much of a difference now. It feels like everyone's been affected, maybe to different levels. I mean, certainly if you look at the hospitality sector over the last two years has really been impacted. And obviously they've got very much a growth mindset now to try and drive that forwards. But it does seem that certainly some of the research I've been reading around is that 50% of small business leaders are saying that they're quite optimistic around growth and that they're going to see that kind of continue to grow as the economy starts to bounce back. So are there things that firms should be looking at right now as small businesses that could start to show them where the growth is? Are there indicators already out there that they can go, okay, I can see that signpost. Now's the time to start thinking about it a bit more. Hey, definitely. So, um, So there's a few things here. Um, First things first, I think we need to acknowledge the changing landscape as of today versus previous recessions and in fact previous good times as well. So the pandemic, whilst it had a horrific impact economically and societally from a health perspective and so on, 
actually one of the very few silver linings of that cloud was that um, technology was embraced a whole lot more. So, and I, I, I don't just mean the technology that we use in our businesses. You know, often, Steve, people like you and I will talk about technology and we will automatically yeah. think of instant messaging and video calls and the way that it allowed us to do our work from the comfort of our bedroom. However, when we're talking about um, the wider society, um, how did technology get impacted? Well, very simply, we had a huge proportion of people who had never um, shopped online before. All of a sudden, were getting their groceries either delivered at home or uh, they were collecting them on a click and collect basis. They were starting to use services such as Deliveroo and so on. There was a, there was a whole societal shift in, in as far as the adoption of technology. And with that became, um, I, I guess, a change in both buying behavior, what it was that we were looking for from the purchases that we were making. I think that we um, we cut out a lot of the middle ground of collecting stuff because for the first time in our lives, we had to live around that stuff. Um, but what, what was actually quite rare was toilet paper and experiences. You know, we <laughs> had to get the necessities. They were a struggle to get hold of. And we wanted something that gave us um, a, a little bit of difference from the mundane day-to-day -day during the pandemic, which I guess is one of the reasons why if we were to look back in hindsight at the pandemic, the um, Eat Out to Help Out scheme did so well, was because it was just a novelty. If we cast our minds back to July, August um, 2020, it was a novelty to actually eat somewhere that wasn't your own yeah. kitchen. So there's been this, this shift in, um, in buyer behaviour um, buyers' ability to use technology, and again, I'm not I'm not talking about those who were already internet savvy and so on. I'm talking about the mass market here, and businesses are seeing a very real opportunity in that. So, if we take a couple of granular examples, I mean, you touched on hospitality and the hospitality sector looking to trade through this. Uh, we know that that sector has been um, decimated by COVID. It was, it was also alongside that, it's been decimated by Brexit. Um, there's a talent shortage in that world. They're struggling to recruit. And it seems like madness that there's such low unemployment during a recession. That's one of the real quirks that we're facing at the moment. And one of the challenges when it comes to stagflation, which we might touch on that stuff later on. But when we look at the businesses, what are they doing to try and overcome this? Well, they understand that their buyer behaviors change. So restaurants are continuing to provide takeaways where they might never have done before. You know, certainly before COVID, who would have imagined that restaurants that are nearly at, or, and probably there are some that are at Michelin star quality would provide a takeaway. You know, that would have been unheard of before 2020, but now that's fairly standard and an additional revenue stream that people are looking to put in. Um, I think if we were to take a step back from that and look at the macro, I think that businesses also understand um, whether whether it's down to government policy, whether it's down to a realisation of um, family illnesses or very worst case bereavement during COVID. Um, you know, a number of circumstances have come to play where business owners have realised that actually they've got one crack at this. And... You know, I think that the if we were to take the profile small small business entrepreneur who is quite ambitious, had a dream when they started up, you know, you wouldn't do this stuff. You wouldn't risk your monthly salary and you wouldn't risk your weekends and evenings just because you wanted to do the same as you're doing in a job. There's obviously a drive that makes you make that jump in the first place. 
Um, I think that added realisation that the government isn't necessarily going to help you. Um, certainly with the recent announcements, they've not been particularly small business friendly. Um, you, you know that actually there's one crack and there's potentially illness or worse just around the corner. I think um, entrepreneurs are actually really engaging their um, entrepreneurial abilities, their ability to pivot quickly, their ability to make decisions quickly and channeling that in a way that is actually quite exciting for the future of UK PLC. And it does feel that that ability to pivot is innate in uh, entrepreneurs, right? But it kind of goes beyond that, that they're often faced with a lot of different challenges, it, even before kind of pandemic and the, the, the incoming recession, that these businesses are very light and nimble generally for small businesses so that ability to pivot is kind of innate and it's something that they've got to be able to go and do to see out the competition around changes in buying behavior like we've just discussed there but in that side of things it can be quite difficult to kind of pivot when you don't know what the future holds so a lot of what's been happening it, we can see that they've learned a lot from experience and those businesses that have continued throughout uh, obviously the last couple of years have almost kind of learned probably four or five years worth of experience in the last two years which is great for any small business because it's that experience that will help them going forwards but going forwards the next couple of years almost feels more uncertain than what we've had from the last couple of years. And I know looking at some of the statistics behind it, the fact that the number of small businesses in the UK has declined for the first time in a number of years, which we've seen a boom over the last few years, and for it to decline kind of says that there are those that haven't been able to pivot and unfortunately have had to close shop. But we've also seen some businesses joining together where they're actually going, well, actually, it's better and stronger for us to work together and therefore combine. Do you see this as a kind of a way for people to grow? Is that actually, if you can't pivot your business, maybe joining forces with another that might be the better way to go? Yeah. So, Steve, if you don't mind, um, I, I'm going to answer that one quickly, but then come back to some of the points you've made. So mm -hmm. absolutely, yes, that's, not, that's an option that should never be taken off the table. And I think that in this world that we're headed face first into, where we are seeing Porter's model of um, cost of leadership or product differentiation perhaps amplified. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're seeing that from a, certainly from a product differentiation perspective, you've got to be really special to stand out now. Um, artificial intelligence, for example, is writing blogs. You've probably read social media posts from artificial intelligence. You've probably seen graphics from artificial intelligence, and there's now business coaches through artificial intelligence. So product differentiation is going way to one side and then way on the other side, cost of leadership has gone from doing things a little bit quicker to automating the absolute nth degree out of it. So yes, you don't want to be stuck in the middle and a great way of achieving that will be by joining forces. But Steve, I mentioned I wanted to come back to a couple of the other points you raised, if that's okay. Mm. When you mentioned that during the pandemic, business owners have gained maybe five years experience in two. I'd like to contend that, but on a very friendly basis and actually to support that comment you've made, I think that I've had my whole business experience. You know, I've, um, I've been working with small businesses since the age of 16. Um, I think I've had that, you know, for 20 odd years. I've, I feel like I've had that again during those two years. Um, it was absolutely intense. And um, what I mean by that, is not just in my own businesses, but dealing with other businesses and working with the small business community. So I guess directly, 
indirectly and then third hand looking at it, the range of emotions, the range of challenges, the sheer pace of change, the sheer pace of, um, I guess, change in technology, change in government policy and legislation, the sheer change societally. None of us have ever expected or known um, you know, the world to lock down in the way that it did. Um, yeah. The way that we had to end up, um, you know, we, we lost we lost all of our borders through technology, but we also gained our borders on a very real basis that you couldn't get out of the country. Um, all of this stuff actually um, was a real education piece for us all. And I think that that sets us up well for the next two years. The challenge with it is a lot of us are battered and bruised after the pandemic. I know I certainly am. Um, I'm still waiting for my holiday and it's about three years in. And I'm sure that will resonate with other people listening to this. But actually, the downtime that we had hoped for, the roaring 20s, haven't quite come yet. Um, but the advantage of that is that actually we're battle hardened. And in theory, if we are prepared for growth, and there's quite a few risks of growth that I would like to share... And there's also quite a few circumstances that mean you should actually ramp down your plans. But if mm. you're prepared for growth and you're prepared to take on those risks, then actually it's a great time to do that. Why is that? Because, as you said, Steve, a number of businesses have actually closed their doors for the first time ever. And that will come as no surprise to listeners, because I, I believe personally this is the first recession, again, certainly in my lifetime, um, you know, I'm a, a very early millennial and I'm going to cling on to millennial status as long as I can. <laughs> um, both. But I've never seen a recession where you're seeing doors closing in the high street so frequently. Yeah. Often you'll see some major retailers go out of business where they were um, laden with debt and it was just one step too far. You know, they couldn't access their facilities, so they had to they had to go. I mean, somebody filled it up pretty quickly. But what we saw during the pandemic and as we're continuing to see now is that name after name after name is dropping. So during the pandemic, we had Topshop and Debenhams and so on. And now if you walk down the high street, you know, I understand that Jules has gone. And I'm sure there's a load of others that are going. And um, the dynamic of the business landscape is massively changing. But again, an opportunity for growth. It's quite interesting. We'll explore some more of the risks in a moment because you talk about obviously the high street and uh, certainly from where I live, the high street has massively changed. We've got a couple of uh, big towns nearby me and you walk down it and some of them are just desolate. There's just uh, empty windows. So many have closed down. And yet a lot of these areas are then going through regeneration to try and reinvigorate this to bring businesses back. But one of the things I have certainly seen, and th this goes with a lot of small businesses as well, is that they're moving away from the high street, but still having a physical presence. And quite a few of them are starting to go to more industrial areas where it's cheaper for rent, it's cheaper for the, these pieces to be able to be done. And there's a great example, actually, because uh, I, I'm a big foodie. So here's a good one for, for anybody else who's listening as a foodie. The donuts seem to be the new big thing. There are a number of different kind of like uh, small business donut makers ramping up, but they're all on industrial parks because when I've spoken to them, rates are cheaper. They can get access because they're available. They can potentially rent off of somebody else that's within there. And they're, as you said earlier, they're a takeaway business. They are no longer a kind of a restaurant, so they don't need to be on the high street. People will quite happily go to them, go collect, and then come away. 
So this seems to be maybe a shift that we're seeing away from the high street, maybe to more industrial areas where potentially there is the business and people are, are willing to get the access for it. So maybe this, the shift is away from the high street and because of the online shopping world that's happening, maybe it's just a, a location shift rather than a, they're closing the doors completely. And I suppose that's part of the, the risks, isn't it, around growth is that if you want to go and invest, and we'll talk about kind of areas of where you can invest and where you can get the money from and funding for in a moment. But if you are going to go and invest and you are going to go in growth, is the high street now a risk? Uh, yes and no. So again, I'm going to answer this in a few parts, Steve. Um, with the high street, we've we've actually got a really interesting situation now. And you've mentioned about regeneration. Um, there's you know, there's clearly a difference between local areas. So, for example, my local town, actually, um, you know, Touchwood has been not it's not been devastated. It's been impacted, but it's not been devastated, and it still it still feels like it's thriving and it's become part of a business improvement district and so on. So actually, it's been okay. What I think for the high street side of things, um, and where I believe the opportunity is for those listening, is I believe that the makeup of the high street will be changing. And that's driven by a couple of reasons. So the first is that um, pension funds tend to hold a lot of these properties. And we had this ridiculous situation, um, certainly historically, where the value of a pension fund was based on the rentable value of the property. Now, one of the challenges of this, Steve, was that actually, if the if the property was empty, that was fine because it didn't impact the pension fund's value if it was still mm. valued at X. So we yeah. had this really um, perverse situation where properties could be left empty. And potentially that's what happened during the start of COVID. Um, properties could be left empty and it wouldn't really impact the pension fund valuation. So on balance, that was how it was left. And that, that's always been a challenge for new brands entering into the high street. And one of the reasons why we see the legacy brands, you know, the, the likes of the Debenhams, the John Lewis's and so on, that have been a, a mainstay. Now, what's happened over that time is obviously during the pandemic, there's been a number of closures and things have had to change. And this is where the opportunity is, because what I'm seeing the early signs of in high streets is um, I'm first of all seeing local authorities working together with landlords to um, try and promote more small business friendly terms. So what do I mean by that? Shorter leases, uh, you can come in and out, perhaps rent-free periods and so on, but looking at ways that small businesses don't take on the massive liability they would if they're looking to embark in the retail space. Secondly, I think that one of the, I mean, again, being a foodie, one of the very best things that we learned as a society in the UK during the pandemic was to eat outside. And it seems like some of the restaurants that adopted this during the pandemic are pushing the boundaries of how many tables and chairs they can have outside. We've still, obviously, we've got our archaic planning laws and the not in my backyards to um, to try and overcome on this. But I think that for the regeneration of a high street, but more importantly, for the prosperity of independence and the opportunity for them to grow, I think that's a growing thing. And then the third thing is... I'm seeing a slight relaxation in planning as well um, it, on the basis that any business is better than no business. So we're starting to see over the last few years, we're seeing the rise of you know, certain gym chains coming into the high street rather than industrial estates. Um, I'm sure many listeners will know the gyms I'm referring to there. 
We're seeing um, more food and drink establishments opening up and so on. So some glimmers of hope for the future high street. And how do I see the future high street? Well, um, personally, I see that it will be made up of more independents and newer brands that we haven't seen before coming in from overseas. I'm, I'm certainly speaking to a number of those who are seeing the UK now as, believe it or not, quite an attractive market. Why are they seeing that? Because of the um, you know, sort of the weak currency. So when it comes to investment, they're seeing that actually from Europe, they're seeing that there's no real time difference and they all speak English anyway from a logistical perspective. So it kind of works from there. But they're also seeing that the chains on the high street that are um, legacy chains are typically debt laden and they're going to struggle. So they're starting to see opportunity that wasn't there before. So the high street, I believe, is an opportunity for some, and it is an opportunity for independence. We've obviously got the societal shift again during the pandemic of people wanting to support their community, wanting to shop small, wanting to support those that supported them during the pandemic. Um, so I think that I, I'm mixed on the high street. I think there's a positive outlook for some businesses, particularly small businesses, for bigger businesses, yeah, I'm, I'm uncomfortable like you on that, Steve. Um, but the, the explosion of certain trends, and you mentioned donuts. Um, yeah, I've certainly seen the donuts everywhere. And anybody who looks at me probably can see that I've seen the donuts everywhere. However, um, moving aside from that, I'm going to talk more generally about the food and drink industry. One of the best innovations I've seen recently, and an example of innovative thinking that's allowed businesses to um, to actually start up and really prosper during hard times. Um, looking at the dark kitchens. So I don't know if you've come across these, Steve, but nowadays um, you have kitchens that have maybe five, six, seven, 10, 20 different brands. And the kitchens will, um, will manufacture all kinds of food. So when you go onto your Just Eat, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, other apps are available, and you, um, you look at your Chinese restaurants, that Chinese meal, if you don't know the restaurant, you haven't heard of it, it could be being cooked alongside a Thai, an Indian, a pizza, so on and so forth. So that's been a, you know, one of the sectors that I've seen really boom. And again, off of the typical secondary location that a takeaway would be, and out in an industrial estate where it's a proper operation. I've also seen for um, pubs, you might, you might remember, Steve, back in the days when we would all go to the pub in the evening because that seems like a distant past nowadays, certainly to me. But you might remember, but but some of them were proud to serve Costa Coffee. And that was a brand licensing deal. But those kinds of licensing deals have expanded now as well. So we've seen it in coffee where Costa Coffee and Starbucks would be in petrol garages and vending machines and pubs and hospitals and all sorts of places. Papa John's are doing the same for pubs now. So if you're a pub that hasn't got a food offering, they can give you all of the kit. You know, you don't even need to have a professional kitchen. They give you the kit. You obviously have to meet your food um, hygiene standards and so on. But you can start making Papa John's pizzas in your pub. And if it's an area where there's no Papa John's, you can obviously offer delivery as well. So there's a whole host of opportunity. And that, that's just looking at one sector there. And there's an awful lot to, to kind of like decompress from what you've just said there, because... <sighs> Those businesses we talked a bit about joining forces, often enough, that kind of almost like that partnership piece, rather than fully joining together as one business, can be a way to mutually help them. And 
I, I quite like the idea of the, uh, the the pubs who have been struggling. We've seen that industry really struggle. Um, having almost like a bit of a lifeline from other brands coming to, almost to their rescue in some regards. And a lot of these sorts of things probably wouldn't have been thought about previously. And the, the changes in dynamic in markets that have happened over the last couple of years have forced people to think differently. And I think that thinking differently is what's going to drive the future forwards. And those that are thinking about growth, and hopefully there are a few that are listening today, what are some of the ways that they can start to, to think differently about what they're doing? I know speaking with a lot of small businesses, obviously they spend so much time in their business, driving their business, being kind of the one physically doing everything. And there'll be a few of our listeners who are probably sitting there listening to this whilst they're working right now. But does business planning actually hold a key to the future for them? Could they be planning around some of these things that maybe we've talked about, other things they're seeing as well, to plan into their business? Or is the markets changing so rapidly that is planning actually maybe not the right thing to do? What, what are your thoughts? Oh, a few questions there. So uh, I'm going to kick off with um, what I believe was the first one, which is around um, thinking differently and um, is that an essential um, part? Again, I'm going to say yes and no, um, but actually I'm mostly sitting on yes. But the reason I say no is but I think there's real opportunity for businesses to adopt the space of the incumbent. So what do I mean by that? If we were to look again, bigger picture, I think that we can clearly see now that next, for example, are going to be the new Debenhams. I'm waiting for them to open their first department store. You know, they've got their next beauty stores. They've acquired a number of well-known brands. They're acquiring databases. They're acquiring web presence. Um, they're building a mini empire there that would rival my cashless. So from that perspective, we're seeing that. And if we were to look in other industries, we've spoken a lot about hospitality, um, Weatherspoons, you know, it's uh, been no secret, but Weatherspoons have had some challenges and um, it's likely that there will be a new Weatherspoon to come up at some point. It's likely that um, there will be new fast food chains growing. It's likely that uh, there'll be a whole host of um, growing businesses that take the opportunity and don't necessarily act significantly differently from the others, but they're just different enough to... Um, to steal a march from their competitors and become a national player very quickly because recessions are the times that these things happen where a small business actually can scale up very quickly. Mm. Um, the reality of that though is yes, there will be breakout stars in professional services, in hospitality, in uh, man in a van services, all of these things, there will be breakout stars but there will also be a lot of um, failed unicorns that try to do it and perhaps raise external funding and then realise that actually the tide is against them. So that's where the risks, as I touched on earlier, the risks of growth come in. And perhaps as a lovely segue, that's where planning comes in as well. Um, I think in changing circumstances, I've certainly changed my view on not, not so much the validity of plans because... Everybody knows that projection is a best guess. Um, we're lucky if we're here tomorrow, let alone if our plan is accurate for tomorrow. <laughs> so um, so a, a plan has always been a forecast, a best guess. Um, it, it's allowed us to, um, I guess, the important part of planning, it's allowed us to think about actually what is it that we want to do. It's allowed, it allows us, if we plan far enough in advance, to clarify our dream. 
It allows us to rationalize the product market fit. It allows us to quantify the total addressable markets. So I know I'm sharing a load of jargon here. I'm sure some of the listeners will know these, some of them won't. If you don't speak to your accountant, they'll help you with this. Um, but it's about the whole process of planning. It allows you to think through more fully how your business becomes a reality. So it takes your dream, it pads it out, and then it gives you a, a, a very broad roadmap of where to go. The importance at the moment for businesses who are looking to grow, I believe, is short-term planning. Um, and when I say short-term, I mean very short-term. I mean three to six months. And we're all used to seeing three-year, five-year projections for the bank. Let's be honest, they're not worth the paper they're written on at the moment. Even yeah. in ordinary times, you've got more chance of winning the lottery than getting every single number in your business plan correct. And my publishers questioned me on that quote, and I'm absolutely happy to stand by it because you don't just have to get six numbers correct. You've got to get a thousand numbers correct. It's just impossible. So, um, so first things first, the longer term plan is, I would say, um, it's important for your full process, but don't rely on it too much. But your short term planning is absolutely vital. Now, what should your short term planning involve when you're looking for growth? Um, first things first, in a recession, absolutely cash management. And whilst we hear the stories of businesses that have done amazingly well, they're unicorns and they've never turned a profit, but they're a billion valuation, those days have gone now. You know, they went in the dot-com days and it, it kind of softened in the credit crunch days. Again, it's gone. Um, investors at all levels are looking for unit level economics. And they want to see either revenue generation or they want to see a, a very clear path to revenue generation, not just we'll keep chucking money at this until it works, but look at our community. So that's a, that's a big change. So cash is absolutely king because if you decide to go down the aggressive growth route rather than the organic growth route, the one thing that's going to stop you is absolutely cash. It's going to be a funder, pulling back on their funding, pulling back on any verbal agreements, etc. That's what's going to restrict you from your growth plans. Um, in terms of other areas of planning, and this probably impacts um, organic businesses more than the fast growth businesses now. I mean, cash is still important and understanding your headway and availability of cash and the appetite of your bank to support you. I think that making yourself credit worthy as an organically growing business is really important. So you might not be aware, but there is um, far more, I guess, um, holistic credit checking on companies now than there ever has been before. In the past, it used to be just a quick check on companies' house. Do the numbers look big enough? And does the director look clean enough? You know, have, um, have they been bankrupt? Have they defaulted on any debts and so on? Nowadays, businesses have a credit score much the same way as we do as individuals. So yeah. making sure you're credit worthy, making sure that you're messaging that goes out so for example what you file at company's house consider whether you want to file more rather than less historically most of us entrepreneurs have wanted to file the minimum that we can because it's our business not everybody else's but you might be inclined if things are going really well to file a director's report that isn't just a standard director's report but shares some key ratios in your business and how you're growing and so on you're allowed to do that you're allowed to over disclose so it could be a good idea right now, whilst the lending um, climate is difficult, to try doing that. The third reason for um, planning 
is to make sure that you don't fall into a trap of overtrading. And again, comes back to availability of finance, but it's a really um, careful juggling act. And one of the things that I'm seeing with small businesses is that they need to be very switched on in terms of their mix of funding. So whereas in the past, you could go to your bank, get a loan under the EFG, it's you know, part secured by the government and so on. And it was quite an entrepreneurial way of doing things. Nowadays, you need to consider how you use any assets in your business. Do you look at refinancing them and so on? So look at your funding mix. The fourth part for planning, and this is actually moving away from the financials, but impacts the financials, is operational planning. Because where we are today, as a business, you don't necessarily know what's around the corner. So I don't subscribe to the no plan B ethos. Mm. In fact, I'm a very strong believer that you should have plan A, plan B, plan C, plan, plan D, and you should be working on plan Z. So that you've got a number of scenarios mapped out and you can pivot. Now, I know that the motivational quote of no plan B is if you're not committed, don't do it. And I kind of get that from a motivational perspective and it's great popcorn motivational material. It will get you hyped up. It'll think, yes, I'm going to do this. Yes, I'm going to start my business. Yes, I'm going to scale. Yes, I'm going to franchise. Yes, I'm going to merge with someone. It's That's the stuff that fires you up. Mm. But the commercial reality is that there could be a roadblock that's completely outside of your control, put in your way, and you've got to pivot very quickly. Would it be easier to pivot if you've got an idea of how you're going to pivot? Not necessarily for financial projections, but the operational steps you're going to take. So let, let's look at some practical examples of that. And this one is totally aside from the economy, but for businesses that rely on social media, if all your eggs are in the Instagram basket, isn't it a good idea to have a plan B and start slowly putting a footprint on TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, your own website, building an email list, etc., etc., so that if ever Mark Zuckerberg or um, any other owner of these networks, I'm not going to mention the one who's most likely to do it, decides to press the big red button, your business can very quickly pivot with minimal impact. And the same applies for all businesses. If you are, um, you know, certainly my background is in accountancy. If you're an accountant and you're focused on core compliance, just have a think. You don't need to do it, but have a think about the other services you could offer. Because the process of creating that plan again, it's more about the process than the plan itself. You might think, why on earth haven't I done this 10 years before? Mm. And what starts the plan B might actually be a pivot through your choice, not somebody else's choice. And a pivot through your choice is not only more likely to be successful because you bought into it, but also a pivot through your choice is more likely to avoid the bumpy road because you can plan for it rather than it happening to you. And from everything you've kind of just said there, it does feel that, as you said, cash is absolutely king right now. And so tight kind of budget planning and control is useful. Obviously, keeping a view of plans to the short term, like you said, three to six months rather than longer field feels kind of pretty critical for businesses. And uh, I must admit, I, I don't subscribe to the no plan B PC either, especially in the current economic climate that you just don't know what's coming around the corner. So not having a plan B is almost like a sideswipe to everything that's going on. Technology definitely seems to be helping people with some of these plan Bs. Your point around social media is very valid because of everything that's going on right now. There are platforms out there that allow you to build up your followers in multiple 
different social medias at the same time with just one source of content. So that really does help people to try these new things and build up mm. a plan B, C, D, certainly in the, the social media space. I also think, Steve, diversification of all types is important at the moment because, mm. because we're in such a rapid period of change. This doesn't just apply to social media. And I think it's important because there'll be some business owners thinking, well, I'm on all the platforms anyway. What's this guy talking about, about diversifying social media? I, I genuinely think that now is the time to be testing and measuring, to be looking at what works and what doesn't work and um, making sure that you've, um, you've got enough, um, I guess, different strings to your bow, that if something catastrophic happens or if change accelerates in a way that you don't expect it, bear in mind for change over the last two years, I don't know the stats for this, but I'm just saying anecdotally from my own view, it's changed far more in the last couple of years. Life has been in the last 20 years. Mm. And um, the pace of change wasn't just a COVID thing. You know, it, it is tempting to say that actually this stuff is all down to COVID and it's all going to go back to normal. Well, we're not in the new normal yet. And I yeah. don't think we're ever going to find the new normal because the pace of change has ramped up dramatically um, you know, over the last 10, 15 years. And there's some amazing stuff going on out there. And when I say amazing, I say that with my tech geek hat on, not necessarily my small business hat on, yeah. because small businesses are going to struggle to stay on top of this stuff. Um, there's going to be some false flags as well, like NFTs. Um, now, they might become amazing in 10 years' time, but there was a trend a year ago for people to put thousands into them and then make millions. There's a trend now to put a thousand into them and lose everything. So, um, so I think that right now it's about keeping options open. It's about diversifying whatever it is you do. So if you're a clothing shop, is there a gift range that you can offer? Um, if you're selling your clothing then online, yeah, if you're a little local boutique, you decided to go online, um, have a look at other avenues for sales. Can you be speaking to corporates and yeah. can you go in and be doing corporate styling and so on? I think that it might seem a little bit unfocused and yes, it is. It's not necessarily the rigid path that you would have followed in business as usual times. But where we're at now, you need to be exploring the landscape. And that quote you made earlier, Steve, think differently. Think about the ways that you can do what you do. And we all know it comes down to a few things, product, placement, pricing, and so on. Um, test and measure what works, what doesn't work. And who knows, you might have a ready-made pivot that comes out of this. Mm. And the testing those different ideas to, to build out a bit of plans B, C, D, all the way through to Z, that's really good to go and do that. Because like you said, if you test and measure it, then you'll be able to see, oh, this one could work. This is maybe a way I could pivot my business or could, to your point, why have I not done this before? To do those, often enough, you can do that yourself with the, the resources that you've got, whether the funding, people, the, the processes, as well as obviously the technology behind it. People can pretty much readily lay their hands on to go and test these things out. Yes. How about when someone then goes, right, I've tested it, I've measured it, it works. Okay, I can see a real growth opportunity here. There's generally two stumbling blocks at that point. A good idea is great, but actually enabling it and then making that happen is a, a big chasm that people have to try and go across. And I often see that it's two areas that people struggle with. Um, one is people finding the right people for it because we know we're in a talent shortage. You know, it's hard to not just bring new talent to uh, small businesses, but also 
retaining your top talent as well, because you'll only be successful if you've got the people behind it. But the other side of things is then the investment and the funding and where to go for that. Because as you said, banks historically have asked for three to five year projections for some of these things and spending the time building out to what, like you said, a lottery win set of numbers can be very difficult. So let, let's take the people ones first of all. How how can small businesses kind of retain and attract their talent to help them with their growth aspirations? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to support everything you've said about where the challenges are, because um, we live in an unprecedented time where you can have enterprise level software for a relatively low subscription. No, that's not an advert mm -hmm. for, for anybody, Steve, but um, that's the reality of where we live. We've got the equivalent of Encyclopedia Britannica, but farm multiplied by 10 at the click of a button. So we've got all the information we need, we've got the tools we need and so on, but it does come down to those two core issues, people and funding. With the people, I think that one of the big impacts of a pandemic is this societal shift we've been through. And we know that there's a lot of talk about the change of workplace. And um, Steve, if you don't mind me saying, there's a lot of talk from white guys of our age, and I'm not trying to play 20 cards here. Mm. Um, I, I'm not trying to be overly woke, but people who've got to a certain point in their life where actually it's a case of, I'm all right, Jack, I can work at home. I don't have to sit for an hour on the train. And um, because I haven't got, um, I, I don't know, Doreen from accounts nagging in my ear, I can do a little bit more work too. And that's correct, but from a recruitment and retention perspective as a business owner, it's not necessarily, um, I guess, conducive to a growing enthusiastic team. So where do we stand today with recruitment and retention? I think that, first of all, we need to acknowledge, and again, not to, I'm trying to use buzzwords, but what Gen Z or Alpha or whoever, what they want. And what they want is not necessarily what we expect them to want. So I know from personal experience that um, you know, Gen Z, for example, are more reluctant to change on technology than millennials and Gen X. Um, and that's just what I've seen firsthand. And it staggered me because my belief was these guys have grown up with computers. But actually, mm. when you think about it, I, I guess um, you and I, Steve, were of the first generation to start using computers at school but only late during our schooling process. And we had to do the hard times of not using computers. But most importantly, we had to do the very hard thing of changing. So we had the change, which was perhaps motivated by novelty. And we've kind of embraced new technology as it comes along. It's like, yeah, come on, load me up with new tech. I'm not necessarily seeing that from the next generation who mm. expect things to be as, as it has been all the time for them. So... That's an, that's a, first of all, that's an interesting observation, I guess, to shatter any preconceived expectations that people might have. Actually, you need to look at what it is that your business needs, what the group of talent needs and how you can provide it. So what do they need? Um, I think that right now people are looking for societal connection. Um, it's a staggering stat. I read a book by a lady called Priya Parker. And it was all about the psychology of huddles and how groups work together. And um, in that book, there's a, there's a number of um, stats that were raised, but one of them was that in the US, I believe, and please don't quote me on this, but I believe it was two thirds of people hadn't met their colleagues. Yeah. Okay. And that is staggering because they were recruited during the pandemic. They'd either always been remote, recruited during the pandemic, whatever. 
And these are people where they are probably used to dealing with people. So there's a societal need then. She goes in, on to talking about um, how hybrid meetings are flawed and so on and so forth. And, and, and generally, the general gist of it is, look, guys, we're still working this stuff out. Um, so from a recruitment perspective, I think that you need to be demonstrating that you're giving people what they need, whether that's working environment, whether that's pay. Um, thankfully, from the talent shortage perspective, I've noticed that the pay demands have dropped now. Um, and I'm saying that at the time of recording. Um, certainly six months ago, um, pay increases were you know, one of the real worrying factors as we headed into a recession. That seems to have leveled out now. Mm. Um, and I that's a need for security that team members are looking for. Um, but also, I think that staff members of all ages, we've, we focus on Gen Zs. I don't know why I went down that path, but I'm now going to look at everybody. I think everybody is now looking for a culture where they believe they fit over and above career progression, so on and so forth. Because if they fit and it's what they like to do and what they're good at, the career progression just happens. But I don't believe that people today of any age, of any demographic, I don't believe they're solely looking for working 18 hours a day like the people before them might have done, yeah. sleeping at the desk in a sleeping bag. They're actually looking for the culture and the balance. But again, might have come from that um, one life sentiment that we've had during the pandemic. And when it comes to retention, because obviously that's the second part of this equation, because it's a whole lot easier to recruit when you retain your staff as well. Mm. You've got less people to find. And you don't have those awkward questions of, why is there a conveyor door? And I can see team members constantly going out. To look at that side of things, it's not the ping pong table. It's not the superficial values and vision and so on, but it's actually about really considering this stuff and making sure that it permeates through the business. So if you've got a vision, you need to make sure that it's not just on your website and um, your business plan that you give to the bank, but all of your team members not just know it, but they love it, they talk to people about it, they're energetic about it. It's it's part of what they do. The values, again, rather than just picking words that look like what somebody in your business should be doing, you actually have to live and breathe them, make sure that you manage those values as well, have appraisal processes for them and so on. Um, you know, there's a whole piece around building a culture, but ultimately in this more detached world that we live in right now. And who knows what this so-called new normal will look like. But at the moment, we're, we're semi-detached we're semi detached from each other because, let's be honest, Steve, five years ago, we would have been doing this interview in a studio. We're now doing it through video call. Um, where we're at right now, we need to ramp up our communication of this stuff. And we need to really make sure that everybody's almost bored of hearing about it because it gets diluted when it's not a face-to-face -face conversation. You can't see the whites of your eyeballs and the touch of a handshake. It actually needs to be focused on more than ever. So from a people perspective, it feels like bringing a more social aspect to it, bringing people together, the face-to-face -face element that we've lost for the last few years, bringing that back will certainly help from a acquiring new talent or retaining it. The flip side of that then is the investment for growth. Because, yes. yes, if a business is cash rich, maybe they will be able to go and fund their own investments. But let's be honest, most small businesses don't have a ready pot of cash to go to. Historically, they would have gone to kind of the bank to go and have these conversations. But we've certainly seen lending habits change over the, the recent years. And whilst maybe 
nine in 10 uh, small business owners say that they would drive more investment once the, uh, the, the economic climate starts to um, remove this uncertainty and it starts to ease. More than a quarter of those small business owners have said that they'd actually look to do this through alternative methods. Some of them, and certainly some of the stats we've seen is that a quarter of people are saying that they might go and look for attracting angel investors. Another quarter have said that they might go and secure it against commercial mortgages. Others are looking at whether they use personal loans into their own business, which we've seen a lot of small business owners doing. But there's a, a growth in people starting to use more bank overdrafts, looking for grants. Now, grants is a, a big topic and we probably won't be able to cover it today, but there's actually more available to people than anybody ever thinks. And going and having a look in, and maybe as you mentioned earlier, speaking to your accountant who probably knows a lot of what you could be uh, able to apply for could be a good way of sourcing it. But we're seeing the, the growth of these alternative lenders for SMEs as well. Do we think that this is a fad or do we think this is a change in the dynamic for investment funding? Yeah, so I think it's a continuing change. And yes, we've seen a massive growth in third party lenders. But again, that was happening um, yeah, back when I wrote my first book, Startup Coach. I was writing about the likes of Funding Circle and um I can't remember the other names of a peer-to-peer -peer lending, which was quite a new space back then, and crowdfunding was quite a new space back in 2015. Yeah. So we're seeing an expansion in it. I think that, I mean, first things first, I, I would just want to address from a, um, a financing perspective, the very best funding that you can put into your business is funding that you can um, deliver yourself. And I'm not talking about remortgage your house and put it in. Yeah. I mean the cash you can extract from your business as it stands. So... Um, whilst I think it's incredibly naive to stop marketing during a recession, um, you know, if you're struggling for new work, why would you turn off the tap that gives you new work? Yeah, that, that just kind of doesn't make sense to me. Um, whilst I think it's naive to cut entire functions of a business, it is wise to review your spend and return on investment. Yeah. It's wise to be looking at your debtors and creditors days. You know, are you paying people too quickly but not getting paid quickly enough? It's wise to be looking at your bad debts and is there a way to secure income earlier so that you don't fall foul of bad debts and so on. You know, look at ways to make sure that your business is geared up for cash generation rather than living in the fluffy times that we were living in before. And, um, you know, while some might not feel that it was fluffy times, it was fluffy times because let's be honest, um, we had started to move into the subscription economy since you know, probably 2012, I would say, where we all started subscribing for stuff rather than buying it. And yeah. we don't we don't look at the subscriptions. And many of us now are probably looking through our bank statements. We're probably thinking, you know, do I need that subscription for that, um, yeah, that gin box that I've not opened for three months? Or do I need this subscription or that subscription? We should be doing the same in our business. Yeah. So we should be looking at um, all of our costs, all of our overheads, um, looking at the efficiencies in our business, looking at where we can build marginal gains in what we do. Um, yes, we all aspire to be a paperless office. It might just be move the photocopier closer to your team members. Um, if it saves two seconds per trip, who knows what they can do in that time once it's built up over the week. So, so there's a lot of stuff we can do internally to, I guess, reduce the need for funding. And that's the important word need, because actually, I think that what we need to do in the world we're in today, and if we've got growth aspirations, is not need funding, but want funding. We want to be attacking this proactively, 
and again having the different options where we know the unit level economics of our business works you know we know that we're making a turn on our product and we've got x yeah whatever we're offering if we're offering um accountancy if we're offering architecture if we're offering dentistry if we're offering um physical widgets whatever we're doing we want to know that we're making a margin on those and that if we don't get the funding we can still be a skinnier profitable business that generates cash so I think that having that grounding then turns the funding from a need to a want. And when it's a want rather than a need, actually, surprise, surprise, you're a whole lot more attractive to lenders yeah. because they know that you don't need their money to pay the wage bill at the end of the month or whatever. So for a small business owner, as you said, Steve, there's the rhetoric from the government, which really frustrates me. I hope you don't mind me sharing this opinion. But it really frustrates me when I was hearing that small businesses are sat on more money than they've ever been sat on before, because that's not the reality I'm seeing. That's not the reality I've seen in 99.9% of businesses. I think there were some businesses who um, perhaps maybe didn't need some of the government support schemes and took them and might have been sensible and retained that money rather than buying the Range Rover. So there might be some. Yeah. But the average small business owner, and I'm sure that many entrepreneurs on this call, yeah, listening, will it will resonate with them. But actually, they've got to be more careful with their money, as it stands, in a tougher climate anyway to get funding. So as it's a tougher climate, look, the banks, in my experience, what I've seen over the last few months, are tightening their books dramatically. We're starting to see some glimmers of hope. So, for example, one high street bank has opened up their RLS lending to non-bank customers now for the first time. Um, those of you listening might know the challenges with bounce back loans and so on, where if you didn't bank with the bank that you, were, you wanted to get it from, you just you really struggled to get one and people weren't taking new applications. That stuff's opening up now, but the criteria is tightening. So I, I guess for mainstream banks, it's more challenging to access finance. We have to remember they're still in the business of funding. Mm. So there is a tipping point and good deals will get funded. But it's those marginal deals that will have a challenge. And the difference we're seeing right now, so this is hot off the press, Steve, is what makes a marginal deal isn't necessarily that it's um, cutting it fine on the ratios that they use. You know, banks will tend to use ratios such as um, interest cover and so on to, to check affordability. It's not so much on that, it's actually around the sectors that they're prepared to tolerate. And if it's not in a hot sector that they want to be in, then you could find there's a, just a blanket no on your sector. So this is where the alternative lenders and funders come in. So we've seen a massive growth in the um, alternative lenders. Some of them are more similar to payday loans. Others are just genuinely bridging that gap between a reasonable business, you know, not a great business, but a reasonable business yeah. case and a note from the bank. And they're looking to bridge that by maybe a percent or two more. I think for growing businesses, they need to first of all consider before they look at whether to go alternative lender versus bank lender, etc. They first of all need to make the fundamental decision of equity versus debt investment and understand yeah. the pros and cons of each. Um, very simply, equity investment is probably more expensive long term, but might be your only option. Debt investment is actually quite cash intensive. And whilst the interest has got tax relief on it and so on, uh, it's tougher to get. And 
can be a trap if you've got a lot of debt finance and it's all be paid within a short period of time, you can't get it refinanced. That's the kind of trap that might seem obvious and avoidable, but actually some high street names have fallen foul of that, where mm. they just can't renegotiate with that debt. So um, if it can happen to the big chains that we've all seen and looked at, it can happen to us little businesses who, um, you know, who maybe took on debt in the good days and then thinking, right, how do we how do we restructure this now? The banks are saying no. So um, so that, that's you too. With equity investment, you need to double down a little bit more. So we talked a little bit about alternative versus bank and the fact that alternatives are a bit more expensive or possibly a lot more expensive. Bank is pretty good, but it's tougher to get. With equity, you need to understand your investors' aspirations and the match between you because there's a big difference. You know, we talk about equity investment as if it's, it's just one big thing. There's a big difference between an angel investor who's your uncle, who worked in the same trade as you and loves you dearly and is just giving you support to get you through the hard times and will happily walk away if you give him his money back versus the angel investor who's looking for the next unicorn. Or the angel investor who perhaps even worse then introduces you to his friends um, for the seed round and then the series A, the series B. And at that point, you might find that actually you're no longer an entrepreneur, you're an employee. And with the vesting and all of the traps that come within the shareholders agreement, your ambition of growth might actually prove to be, it might, it might work out financially, potentially. But emotionally, you might find that somebody kidnaps your baby. So there's um, there's a whole host of things that need to be considered when looking at those. But to bring that all back, alternative lenders, absolutely, yes, we're seeing more of them. And I suspect we will see even more over time. I think that the traps people need to look for is the models of charging for these because they're not the same as banks. You know, banks are fairly standard in how they structure these deals. Alternative lenders are... Part of their attractiveness is for flexibility, but also that's part of the downside mm. and just making sure that it's affordable. And with equity, it's about just making sure you've got the right investor for where you want to go, because uncle's not going to help you become a unicorn, um, but unicorn maker isn't going to help you have an easy life. Agreed. And so for those businesses that want to grow, it feels very much like relying on the ways of yesterday could hold your business back from seeing the future for tomorrow. We've covered a lot of different areas and just it, it kind of in summary, I'd suggest that for those businesses that want to grow, don't rely on what you've always done. It's the first piece. Look for ways to potentially pivot your business and do short-term planning to explore plan Bs through to Z as options for you with a case of making sure that you're testing and measuring those. Whichever plan looks like it could potentially work, make sure you're bringing your people involved. Always focus internal first because it's harder to hire and bring new people in than it is to keep your existing one. And where that plan and growth plan may potentially need investment, always look first of all as to could you be funding it yourself before going alternative and then consider the options that you've just explored around equity versus debt and ultimately who you're going to that lender with. Carl, as always, been an absolute pleasure talking through all of this and i want to thank you for joining me today but i also want to thank our listeners for listening in today we've got a plethora of other podcasts on our channel so if you found this valuable please do hit the subscribe button and don't forget to seek us out on all the usual social media platforms 